Welcome to the BDC Podcast, a podcast in which staff at Barking Dagenham College share insightful and entertaining conversations with the digital learning team. We hope to enrich the community at the college by making connections in each fortnightly episode. I'm Nathan, I'm a digital learning apprentice. And I'm Sophie, I'm a digital innovation specialist. And today we're joined by Tim Carey, business enterprise and skills development lead. How are you, Tim? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing, Nathan? I'm brilliant. Thank and yourself, you. how are you I, doing? I, I'm doing good, thank you, okay, Tim. we're all in a good place. So, Tim, how long have you been at the college? Okay, so look, let me work this out. I joined in 2013. Oh, maths, what does that make it? Eight, nine years? Yeah, nine years. Nine good years. So your job title has quite a lot of elements to it. Yeah, that's correct. It really looks at two parts of the role. In the one instance, it looks at business enterprise, which is really about fostering that independent culture whereby people can learn the skill sets to go out and do something independently, start their own business, put those skills to test, do things that they love and do it for themselves. And then, of course, there's that other element, which is that skill development, which is really about providing opportunities for students and people outside of Barking and Dagenham College to really target and further develop the skills mapped to certain behaviours that drive results, get the performance out, and it's the very things that employers are looking for. So my job is really to teach them the skills, the tools, to put those skills to test and be more employable in the marketplace. Okay, Tim, you said you've been here nine years. Are there any standout moments for you working at BDC? Oh, great question. I can't, look, there's been many highlights while working here. Working with students is always a highlight. We've got a great team of staff. They're dynamic. They can be creative. They bring a lot to the table. So to really mention one highlight, I think I'm living the highlights at the moment. I think what I'm doing at the moment in terms of developing skills with a group of people that are trying to get out of a hole that they're in at the moment, a hole they didn't create, a hole that's been created through COVID, leaving them without jobs, changing the profile, and being able to get them back on the employment ladder, that to me is a highlight. We've got great successes, and I feel like it's it's making a real difference to people as they come out of COVID, work in a very different type of climate, and adapt to meet a different way of working, and independently. Yeah, that must be really rewarding. Um, I hope this is a highlight as well for you. This is a no. This, <laughs> if you had to ask me this question again in the next pod, next podcast, I'm telling you, this is my highlight. <laughs> So on this podcast, we ask our guests to think about a topic that they like to share with the community at the college. So Tim, what have you brought to talk about today? (laughs) There were quite, I'll be honest with you, there's a couple of topics I have thought about. Um, One of the topics for those that know me would definitely be my cat, my little Chi-Chi. But I know that we're limited to what an hour and that is probably in multiple episodes of feline chat. So I'm thinking that today I'm going to talk about, and this is often what people ask me, how did you get from a small town in South Africa, 27,000 people, two traffic lights, sugarcane on the right, sea on the left, how did you get there, put stopping in the Middle East to the UK? So I thought that I'd share that with everybody today. Yeah, it sounds amazing. So whenever you're ready. Okay, so let me paint a picture. I come from a very small town called 
Uvongo on the south coast. And Uvongo is really no, known for two things. It's sugarcane and banana country. And our second claim to fame really is the sardine run. Every year during July, sardines appear out of, well, nobody really knows where they come from. And we have these massive rush of sardines they come out. I mean, that's the claim to fame. So there I was in South Africa, in the middle, on the south coast, in Uvongo. And what I did there was I had a little small hotel. After studying, I really wanted to be a teacher. I remember sitting with my sister in, in the kitchen, not allowing her to leave the table and she, until she had done her homework. So teaching has always been something that's been a part of it. I spoke to my parents. We had a real good chat. And then after that chat, they decided, no, mate, you're doing engineering. There's not a snowball's hope you're doing um, teaching. So what I did is I went off. I did engineering. I spent the minute that the army came in and um, they had reduced the national service. I went off, did my army, came back, finished my engineering and decided that this was definitely not the destination I was going to go into. Working as an engineer, doing my final year in corrugated paper, working with corrugated fluting was not my idea of fun. So I left that, started as a business analyst with a bank and for a while, I decided that that's what I'm going to do until I decided to open and run my own business on the South Coast. From the South Coast, I thought it was all dreamy and all the rest of it, but I decided that no, it's still this idea of going and becoming a teacher and being more involved with the students was really something that I felt was more of a, a calling than anything else. I felt that that's where the direction, that's where my life was pulling. So I was sitting in the hotel one day and in a job advert, I saw a position going for swimming coach. So I decided to leave the lodge to somebody else's hands, still have ownership of it, but spend most of my time coaching swimming. I didn't know at that stage at the, at the college that in order for you to coach swimming, you had to teach. And that's how I got into teaching. So that particular position and that move into that job allowed me to do two things that I really love. Number one is swimming. I eat, sleep, drink water. I played water polo where I come from. We've swum all our lives, represented South Africa, blah, blah, blah. So combined swimming and teaching. And I did that for two years until one day I woke up. I knew I can remember it so clearly. Great day. Now it's a tropical climate, so every day is a great day. Woke up and I was actually thinking about my day that day. And in the morning, because I taught business at grade 12, at the lower levels, I did English and drama with the young grade 8s and 10s. And I was planning that day. And also I needed to get to the pool at 6 o'clock. Training school in South Africa starts at half past 7. Assemblies, they call it to 8. And all swimming had to be done that morning. And I woke up, planned my day, I thought I got the swimming coach and then we got this drama thing afterwards and I turned around, looked at my partner at nine years and I thought, I don't love you. I seriously don't love you. And at that point in my life where I thought I had the perfect job, I, had the, I was doing what I loved, I was living a place that I really enjoyed, I connected with the water, I connected with the people, but I just felt that that element in my life was just not there. So I spoke to my partner, spoke to my parents, and everybody said, just 
get a grip, this can't be possible. And my partner at that stage said to me, what you need to remember in life is what you are getting and not what you're not getting. And that took about two years for me to actually register. I, it took me two years to work out, get over that feeling. Just, just work it through. You can't possibly, after all of those years, be feeling that way. Things are working out. And then I saw a job advert, a tiny little job advert in the newspaper, looking for teachers in the Middle East. It was the, it was the Bahraini government that were looking for teachers, and they were looking for people to set up business incubators. In other words, the role was there for people to come into the country as expats, work with the local Bahaini, giving them 5,000 dinar each, and manage business startup with them and try and work through it. But it was, not, it was not only a case of setting them up with the tools, with the idea um, of being economically independent in a really tough environment, but it was also follow-up. So we provide the training and then six months later we would go back and we would actually see how well they did. Um, so I went, I saw the job advert. I went up to Johannesburg. I had no idea where Bahrain was. I never thought I'd get the job. I went for the interview. I agreed the job. I agreed the pay. And three months later, I flew off to the Middle East. And the idea of me going to the Middle East, although the job was exciting and what you did was exciting, I really had this idea, not doing my homework, that the Middle East was like desert. I'd be going there living in Bedouin tents. I would be with the Muslim people and be come down to earth and have a sense of people and community. And during this time, I thought that this would allow me to obviously come to my senses and realize that maybe I was wrong. But what I realized is that in that environment, taking myself in a completely different place that sometimes in life you've got to just go with your feeling. And sometimes or the, you've got to let, I know often we let emotion override logic. And in overriding logic, it takes us on a different course. But in this case, the logic was to go out, find, go to the Middle East, discover yourself, Think of it as sabbatical, clear your head, realize you were completely wrong, go back to South Africa and play happy families in the hotel, coaching on the side. But it didn't work out that way. I really got into the Middle East and slowly I came to terms with the fact that, you know what, I was right. It's just not there. So my while I was in the Middle East, um, spent two years there, and while I was in the Middle East, um, I realized that actually the Bahraini government were not paying each of the workers from different nationalities. So we worked with Indians and Russians and a whole melting potting of a diverse workforce. I realized that different people doing the same job were earning different money. So they would pay you relative to where you came from. So, for example, you were from India. They were paying your salary equivalent to rupees. They were earning the least because if you look at the exchange rate, they've got no money. If you And the Brits were earning the most money. It had the strongest currency. So I decided that's it. I've got to go to Britain. 
I've got to get a passport. I've got to get my passport. I've got to come back with a British citizen and earn British money in the Middle East. I never got back to the, to the Middle East. I was in, I remained in the UK um, and I've really started enjoying it. I've made a career out of it. I have found love. And now, now when I think of it, I'm going to come back to highlights because now when I think of it, <clears throat> while I was in the Middle East, when I was told, seriously, you've got to look at what you've got and what you're not getting, for a very long time, I thought, you know what your problem is, Tim? You're just not grateful, mate. You, do, you, are not, you don't recognize and you are not a grateful person. <laughs> so I thought, okay, fine. And highlights, I think, Right now, if I need to revisit that, I think one of my highlights here at the career at the college is actually working with this DWP group where you're working with a large cohort of individuals that through COVID are now unemployed. They've joined 1.8 million people of unemployed. And these are people that are trying to keep the wolf away from the door. They're trying to support their families and they're trying to get back into the workplace. And my job is really to try and remind them of the skills they've got. And sometimes our skills are all clouded when you are, when you've got the wolf knocking at your door, you're unable to pay the bills. Friends of yours haven't been affected by COVID. They are still working. They're still functional. Their life is going on, but somehow these people feel that their life has been left behind. And what BDC does is they provide a cohort of people, and we've had 11 cohorts so far, um, with the necessary tools to make this next step a really good step with the skills in the right direction so that they can get out of where they are and make a really new career. And sometimes it's people going back to the careers they've left behind. Sometimes the course provides new opportunities and new scope and they take a new, new direction. And it's during the course that I realized that perhaps it's not important that I be grateful Maybe that has not the issue. And now I'm starting to think in a highlight that working with this group, it's really in me reminding them about their skill set, reminding them about what they need to do to make their possibilities a reality. It's in working with the group that you realize that you yourself have an opportunity to reflect and make your possibilities a reality. So I think that now my lesson is not to learn to be grateful. The highlight is to really make possibilities realities. And by making you, that happens by understanding and having a sense of the self. Knowing what you're about, knowing how you're drawn, trying to have an understanding of why you react or why you behave to certain things and trying to work with it and not work against it anymore. I think a lot of times in my life, there's a lot of things I've worked against and not worked with. So I think my highlight, to come back to the first question, is really about the opportunity of my own development in parallel with those that I work with, whether it's students, whether it's with staff, whether it's a wider context, it's that that joint learning, it's that joint curve. And you need both to really make that happen, to keep the momentum. It's interesting that you talk about the self realizing, Yeah, I guess, being more introspective. But then you also mentioned that working with other people, you get to learn, I guess, more about yourself. 
Correct, because you know it's it, it. Sometimes when we go through these journeys in life, bad experiences we put aside and we don't make them as part of our. We don't build on it. We don't make something of it. We park it. And when you work with a cohort of people that have to, in the very first instant, face those realities, in delivering that, you face them yourselves. So it's confrontational with self, and in that self you develop. You've got to be able to take on your own learning and your own development before you could develop anybody else. There is no way I, as a teacher, could possibly, or as an educator, could ever possibly think of developing anybody else if I can't take my own development in hand. How can you do that? You know, it, it, they go together. Developing self and others, is, is they work in unison. So work because the self is all about a journey, and we all talk about Mazon as a, a self-actualization. In other words, you have the opportunity to become all you can become. I haven't got there yet, mate, because actually what happens, you know, as an emotional character, uh, we have setbacks which always take us back. You know, one step and then you back forward again. And it's this continued growth with the idea of that with, with the security, with your own skill set, with values, you can become all you can be. But I have got that right with my cat. I have decided that if I can't, you see, the cat would get in there somewhere. I have decided that if there is this idea that we can provide an environment, a perfect environment, an ideal environment that would allow somebody or something, whether it's a pot plant, house plant, your child, the neighbors, to become all it can be with the right settings, I think I got that right with my cat. I decided in my life I would only have one cat. This is it. And sometimes, you know, when you go through life and you think, God, there's a lot of things, if I have to think back, I just didn't get right. Misunderstood, got the wrong end of the stick, I mean, many things. But I think with my cat, I got it right. You know, provided an environment that she's just loved, she's taken care of, she, and in that I mean, she listened to classical music. Somebody told me that what you need to do when you get a kitten is you've got to play classical music. <laughs> so it was quite a bit of a joke because everybody who come round for the first year would be listening to Beethoven, Beethoven and Chopin and all these different classical things because somebody told me that would make a cat happy. So for a year, I played classical music. And it did have an effect. Now the cat is calm. She's talking all the time. She's very, very vocal. She has become all the cat she can become. Of course, I don't let her socialize with the local cats in Bow because <laughs> I don't know how that will work out with my little Chi-Chi. But, um, yeah, she's doing well. So the cat is really an important part of, well, really what keeps me <laughs> is still in the UK because you can't travel with her. She doesn't fit in the suitcase. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, so that's really an important part of my life. What it's, kind of cat is she? Oh, back to the cat. Sorry. She's a Persian chinchilla. She's white. She's a miniature Persian chinchilla. So she's bigger than a teacup cat, okay? She's white. She's fluffy. Ah, she's just beautiful. Thank you for sharing, Tim.
I'm really enjoying this discussion on environment and uh, community and cooperation, as you've just said. We're going to ask some more questions about that after the lunch break. So this is the lunch break segment of the podcast where we ask our guests what their favorite food is. Tim, what's your favorite food? <gasps> Without a doubt, condensed milk. It is my favorite go-to food of all of it. I remember the army when we used to go on these, these um, reckies. Now, part of the army, it's quite a frightening experience, but sometimes it would be required that we get onto the Caspers, which is like a truck. We used to call them friendly trucks, you know, like off the coast. Um, so you get onto these trucks by, 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 by mass platoons and you get off and you go into townships where there's a problem. Really a frightening experience because on that particular trip with your rifle in hand and it was so uncomfortable, you have to sit really on top of each other that by the time you actually get to the destination, the fear of maybe having to shoot somebody or being shot is really so far removed from you. What is your immediate concern is will you be able to stand up? Because you've been sitting for hours and hours in a completely unnatural position that when you arrive, we couldn't stand up. But the highlight of doing that was that they used to give the, these rations. And in each of the rations, somebody would get a uh, spam. They would get, which is called Cornish beef or Cornish beef. You would get a little tin of condensed milk. You would get a, like a milkshake drink and you'd get something to make tea. But I'd manage that when they said there was, and this is a terrible thing to say, but whenever they said, We've got trouble in the locations. Get ready. Get your rifles ready. <sighs> I could just think of condensed milk heaven because I know we could never get condensed milk in the army. It was just the only time you ever got it was um, on these particular outings. So on the good hand, it was frightening, and that's where the condensed milk came. So my love for condensed milk is just on another level. I used it once. I mean, I'm trying now to to eat less condensed milk and I have really stopped trying to sneak it into the house at the moment because I have to sneak it in it's it's a bit of a problem I buy it by bastions and then I discovered why sneak it in at the back of each condensed milk tin there's a recipe to make key lamb pie and I can tell you I make key lime pie every single day during lockdown that I now can't eat kilom pie for love of God or money. I am still eating it neat though. Still got it. Had it since this morning. Love condensed milk. Love condensed milk. It's my favorite thing. And in South Africa, what I, and you don't have it in the UK, so you've got to walk around. You can't walk around with a tin in your pocket. It's just not, it, it's uncomfortable for one. And it doesn't fit your top pocket. But in South Africa, what they do is they've got it. They, you can buy, you can buy condensed milk, and it looks like toothpaste tubes. So you can just put it in your mouth and just squeeze it from the bottom. One go, one twelve. Where well, you got to glug glug the tin, and you're left with that tin behind. So I'm really recommending that they introduce that in South in the UK. So condensed milk is the answer. 
I have to say, I haven't really had much experience with condensed milk. I don't know if I've love ever condensed milk. I don't milk. know if I've tried oh, it. I love condensed milk. I love the texture. I love the colour. I love the sweetness of it. I love the fact that I've now can just swallow one big gulp of deliciousness or one down for I just love it. Have I to love try it. Some. <laughs> I love condensed milk. I just really, really love it. And it's so good. I'm saying it's good for you. Good energy. I think the sugar content is enough to kind of send everybody into another dimension. But I, I think I love it. That sugar rush. I can't Just get enough of it. Some condensed milk wormhole. Oh, yes, a condensed milk wormhole. Now that could be my kind of thing. I don't know. Maybe we should actually, maybe I should start a company that's like condensed milk theme. I know Ka- yes. Kate Middleton and her parents have done that whole party thing. But I'm sure kids, condensed milk parties is the way of the future. Is there a favourite dish from South Africa that that you just think of and it's like, oh yeah, I I miss that? Ah, good question. Favourite dish. We have a dish in South Africa called Baburti. So Baburti is, it's a a savoury mince dish. It is traditionally a Cape Malay dish. So it is, um, it's a curry dish. It's served with raisins. Uh, on yellow rice, very delicious. It's also one of those pictures that has that egg on top that you kind of break the egg in it. Strange looking thing, followed by traditional um, dessert. The cake would be milk tart. Well, it's milk tart, milk tart, which is quite a, well, it says what it is, it's milk tart, which you can think of as a really watered down condensed milk pie. And then you've got Cook Sisters, which is a twisted, um, very sweet, doughy, syrupy cake. I think everybody should go home and make baburti. It is savory, it's inexpensive, it's foreign, it's delicious, it's yellow. Is there a, a, an English dish that is your favorite or an English snack? Does it compare to South African food? Um. I think I can't really compare any food because I, a lot of people don't know this, but I eat very, 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 very little meat. I don't eat meat really as such. I'm not vegetarian, but I can't tell you when last I ate meat. Oh no, I'm lying. I ate meat five sausage rolls yesterday at the college. <laughs> I, I, I take that back. If, if, if anybody's... In fact, I know when I did buy them, I thought the first one, because what I'm trying to do is not eat flour. And I've been really good. No flour, no meat. And that cost us. You know, I walked in. You can smell that sausage roll from the LRC. I followed that smell into it. I had two as a starter, and I thought that's breakfast. <laughs> then I went for lunch, which was about an hour later. I had another two, and I was on duty, encouragement duty last time. I looked, I'm here the whole day. You got to eat. So they opened till six. I had another one, and then the woman, I didn't want to. She said, "You know what? I've got a problem. I've got to sell these sausage rolls. We close at six. So I took four home. You <laughs> uh, doing a so service. I, I agree with you. So when you, I, I just, okay, I do eat meat now that I think of it, but only at college. I mean, most of the people outside wouldn't, I, would, I don't need to eat meat at home. 
<laughs> I did sneak those sausage rolls. <laughs> no, 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 I think of it. I, you know, I might have a problem because I'm sneaking condensed milk in. And last night I sneaked the, go- <laughs> the sausage rolls in. In fact, I think I ate it upstairs. I didn't even take it into the kitchen. I'm a closet sausage roll eater. <laughs> oh, no, outed. I've been outed. You're right. Now, is there any British dish you love? It's sausage roll. Sausage roll. I respect that. Love a sausage roll. Actually, I'm vegetarian as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you also eat the sausage rolls? I haven't had one here. Oh, you got it. But maybe on a cheat day. Cheat day. <laughs> yeah, no. Look, I close your eyes. Yeah. And think of it as tofu. Um, Tim, I have to say, listening to you speak has um, turned my day around, I have to say. And I have some questions to ask you. Um, I just want to know, what is it like taking a massive risk and moving your life to another country? How do you get... I, I mean, I don't know if I consider myself a brave person, but how do you get brave enough to... To give something like that a go. To pack up everything you own in a hundred kilograms, because that's all you're allowed, and then go to the Middle East. I don't know. I think I don't know. I think sometimes life takes you on a journey and you just gotta run with it. I think if we stop and think about the whys, we'll never really ever get anything done. I had no idea where Bahrain, and it was quite a strange experience, that whole Bahrain thing, because when I arrived, now, as you know, with the Middle East, Thursday and Friday are Saturday and Sunday. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, Thursday and Friday is the day, so you go to work on Saturday, and the Saturday is like a Monday. And when I arrived in Bahrain on the Thursday, there was a man that had a sign that says Mr. Edwards, which is my second name. I'm Tim, Timothy Edward Carey. They had a sign, Edwards. But I didn't realize that was me. So that I was in the hotel. I was left in a strange country at the airport for 42 hours. I didn't realize that it was me. And that's when I walked out in the first time. And I couldn't believe built up buildings, highways. It's really, I don't know. I had no idea. I think, how does somebody pack up and go and live in the desert on a Bedouin, in a Bedouin tent? Mm. I don't know. It takes a special person. I thought I was that person. But when I arrived, it's a fully built city. (laughs) I mean, I, I couldn't actually believe how how built up it was, how modern it was, how the infrastructure was incredible. It was just so great. It, it was such, <laughs> when I arrived, every thought of sabbatical, every thought of getting in touch with myself and being in an environment where all the noise and all the cloud had gone away to really focus on myself, didn't last for five minutes because the bright lights, the city, the, the I just, I thought I was, I just couldn't get enough of it. So I don't think that's about, maybe it's still coming. I could still be going on a sabbatical. Maybe I'm having a delayed effect, but it didn't work out. I think that sometimes if I had thought of it, I may have talked myself out of it. I think that's what have happened. Um, and I I didn't give my time myself time to do that. It happened so quick. I actually didn't think that much of it. And remember, the focus wasn't really much to go work in a different country for a different organization. 
that had two religions. It was completely alien to me. It, it, that was, it, that's just backdrop. That's just scenery. It's not why I went. I left a different person. But what I thought I would leave with and go back to, I left in Bahrain and moved forward, which was, it would never have happened if I'd really given a thought. And it took me two years to work out the love thing to actually take a step because I couldn't work that. How I think it's sometimes a lot braver to move out a relationship that isn't working for you. That's brave. You know, because often when you pick up and you go into another country, you're doing it with somebody. You're not doing it alone. But to leave a relationship is hard really hard because everything you have is the sense of together shared friends shared property shared in shared business shared pets shared life share 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 and then all of a sudden you don't have that and it was actually also the first time going to Bahrain where for the first time in a very 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 long time I I, I started making decisions that only involved me, which was completely selfish <laughs> for all the wrong reasons, but really so nice to be able to go out and eat what you like and do what you like and just that freedom to be able to explore and be open to different things, which normally when you have a shared life, you're so influenced by the other and so influenced by what's around you. It kind of shapes and dictates and takes you on that course of direction like a wave, you know. You, you just end up floating along with it. Um, yeah. Going to the Middle East, you had this expectation that it would be like a sabbatical. I, yeah, I, I, I promise you, when I walked out that I couldn't believe it. And what made it worse, with the expectation, thinking I'm going to, bed, uh, to, uh, to, uh, I'm going to a really, an island in the middle of the Gulf, that's a desert, surrounded by a religion that I really didn't understand and a language I had never actually heard from. South Africa, in particular area I come, is predominantly an Indian community. It's the second largest Indian community outside of India. Mahatma Gandhi comes from where I come from. So it's just the exposure of the culture. It... I couldn't believe it when and and being at the airport for 42 hours allows you to see the day change. So I watched, I mean, this landscape which was dusty and you have these high-rise buildings so there is still the sense of desert for it all of a sudden to come alive at night. It was I, I can't really explain it. It was just so completely unexpected. But welcoming, you know, I didn't, I wasn't, I, uh, I just was surprised by it. I don't know why I should have surprised. I actually should have done my homework. I should have found out where it was. I should have understood the culture. I should have um, perhaps looked at the days. I should have looked at the lifestyle. I should have looked at the languages, but that's not where I was going. I was going for pure selfish reasons. Me. It's quite remarkable how big of a leap out of your comfort zone. I assume that would have been. It, it was a massive, 
I, you know, a lot of people do say it was completely out of your comfort zone. It was everything that was unfamiliar to you. But yes, it was. It was it was alien to me, <laughs> completely alien. But while I was there, once I, well, I realized that, oh my goodness, I'm actually living in a in a in a kind of a cosmopolitan melting pot now with different nationalities coming there. I had the choice at my first interview when they eventually picked me up at the airport. Um, I had a choice of either staying with other expats in a compound and having that whole compound community, or, and I could have a massive big property in the compound, or I could have a tiny little flat on Commercial Road in dead center downtown Manama. And that's what I did. I went downtown, mate. I decided that I wasn't going to, if I'm there, I was not going to make friends with any expats. I was going to get into the community. And that's what I did. I made friends with Shia. I made friends with the Sunni. I did all the all the festivals. I did the Haida, which is when they cut their heads and they bleed in the streets and they all do the marching. I did that. Watch the horse go by. I lived it at it. I thought it was very important not necessarily packing up and being brave about taking that step, but I needed to be, it was very important that I understood why I was there. <laughs> I was there for a reason and that was there to really sort out and get the mind and the heart working in unison again and not let, the, let logic override emotion and so although it was a big step, it, it, it was just part of the course. It was part of the journey. Bright lights, city lights. So earlier, Tim, you mentioned about um, wanting to find your sense of self and how that felt important to you. Very. Um, how, how, how do you find out who you are or who you're you know meant to what? be? I think that's a very good question. And a lot of people ask, but I think the starting point, and I've learned that working with the DWP, with multiple groups where we talk, I mean, it's all very well. You could do the traditional things about doing a, perhaps a personal skill order, you know, pray of cons, work out your strengths and work out your weaknesses and try and make self. But I think, the route to becoming all you can be is starts off by making friends with yourself. Because wherever you go, you take yourself with you. And I didn't realize that. So when I packed up and moved to the Middle East, and people talk about, you know, the change and all this, in a foreign town with the bright lights surrounded by Muslims, I was still thinking about love. So, yes, strange country, 100 kilograms, completely alien environment. But it was still that idea of what was important and what I was going to and what I was going, you know, it was a case of direction and travel. Was I going back to where I came from with a sense that, I don't know what, but or was I going forward and I couldn't work out whether it was backwards or forwards. And whether I'm going backwards or forwards, I was stationary for a very long time 
trying to work out the heart. And if the heart isn't there, how do you take yourself anywhere else? It's not there. So if that's not there, you're not there. You're a shell. Only. And we all get caught in that. We have relationships. We have relationships with our people we love. We have relationships with our parents. And sometimes that's just not there either. And you just occupy that sibling or self until you can get out of that environment and grow into yourself. Some of us never grow into ourselves. I'm hoping to grow into myself. I hope not in height because I'm six foot four at the moment. I can't be any taller than I am at the moment. You know, getting onto a bus is a bit difficult. I now sit downstairs. I have to fold myself in half to sit upstairs. <laughs> so I hope growth is 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 is, a, is an internal thing. Yeah, metaphorical. But with the amount of condensed milk, I'm growing daily. <laughs> I was going to ask more about your cat. Oh, my cat. You can ask any question. She has a buffet. I've got this thing at the moment where being the cat that she can be means that the cat has choices, doesn't she? It costs a fortune to feed my cat because I, I give her a choice of foods <laughs> that she can choose what she can have. It's normally three soft foods, two different type of pellets and a bowl of water. My cat doesn't drink from the water. That's the only thing I didn't get right. I have to have my tap running permanently in a chair next to the kitchen so she jump on. She only drinks from the tap. I really love her. And I know that I think in life, <laughs> I did try and, I, there is just one stumbling block with my cat. And I don't know if my, my relationship with my cat is because I've tried to create the most perfect environment for her, for her to become all the cat she can be. What defines your cat's personality? Um, in terms of my cat, I think there are many times that I <laughs> I have, there are many times that I've been really pleasantly surprised about everything she's done, but it's normally the actions of other people that shock the living hell out of me. And one of them is I have my, because when I have, my, because she's got long hair, it means that when she's groomed, they've got to sit and they've got to brush this out. And I really, the idea of these brushes going through thick mats and, and, and hurting her, just I don't want that to happen. So I have her anesthetized every time she has her hair done, which is quite an expensive thing to have your cat anesthetized for just basic grooming. But when I spoke to the the the, the, the the vets the last time they suggested that maybe they can do the lioness and i said yeah great turn chi chi into the lioness yeah what i thought it was a term of endearment i didn't realize that the lioness is actually a style of in which you can shape and cut a cat with long hair to have a mane, no body. She looked like a poodle. <laughs> I got this cat back, completely shaved, only her little arms. Oh no, sorry, her. They're not arms, are they? They're legs. <laughs> sorry, I forget, she's a cat. Her front legs and her back legs were these masses of white fluff. The head, fluff. The tail, fluff. And the rest of her was shaved to the skin. So lioness is a style, and it's not a term of endearment. And when I picked her up at the vet, <laughs> 
to say my heart nearly stopped is probably when, when, when I took her out to say, are you okay? And this thing came out. I started laughing. I couldn't control it. I, I, you know, you just don't know how to react and you don't want to upset the people and you've got to, but it shocked me. I've never in my life seen anything so ugly than my cat shaved looking like a lion. <laughs> Do you know it's a style? Did you know that? I didn't Have know Have you that seen that? that? I didn't I, thought it was, I mean, serious. I thought it was a joke. Oh, we'll make Chichi a lioness. I thought, oh, God, lovely Turner into lion. We're, we're I didn't realize <laughs> it's a style. It's a, a style. I just, I, I, I couldn't believe it. I really, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I still, I, I, I took an entire album of photos. I don't think it's, I can't wait to have it done again. Well, thank you for joining us, Tim. I've really enjoyed this discussion. It's been great having a variety of different topics all the way from self-discovery to condensed milk. Again, thank you for joining us. Yeah, Tim. Sorry, Nathan. I have to say, you have proper cheered me up. It's been so lovely talking to you. So thank, thank you. you. It's thank great you. to be in your company. <laughs> I, I shudder to think what the podcast is going to be, what we'll actually share, but it was great fun. I think everybody should do this. If you'd like to be on the podcast, send us an email. We're digitallearning at bdc.ac.uk. We'll be back in two weeks' time with another podcast episode. Woohoo! Oh, that was lovely. It was really fun. I actually that. forgot about this for a while. I completely forgot about it.